Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and ebooks online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Have you been researching and learning about regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building for a while, but are still a bit unsure of where to start? Are you new to these topics and feeling overwhelmed about the sheer scope of information and knowledge that's out there to be absorbed? Are you a seasoned professional in the field looking to expand your experience and expertise with other professionals who are pushing the boundaries of regenerative projects? Well, you're in luck. Here at Abundant Edge, we have just what you need to take the next essential steps towards putting the information from these podcasts, interviews, books, and articles into action. We offer courses for beginners, intermediates, and even seasoned professionals to learn from successful regenerative business owners, farmers, builders, and other artisans who are keen to share their knowledge. Our teachers and facilitators have been working and experimenting tirelessly to provide the most up-to-date information available to help you put your skills and efforts to use in regenerating the planet and transforming the global economy into one that abandons the outdated model of consumption and destruction into one of health, stewardship, cooperation, and abundance. Come and get your hands dirty. You can get a full list of courses and trainings as well as volunteer opportunities now at AbundantEdge.com. We're looking forward to seeing you here. Now, it's not often that I get the chance to speak with a renowned animal behaviorist, much less for a talk about nutrition and nourishment. But my guest today, Fred Provenza, Professor Emeritus at Utah State University, makes the argument that we can learn a lot about our own health by observing the way that animals choose their food in their natural environments. Fred challenges us to be more skeptical of the latest diets and academic findings on nutrition and listen more to our own bodies and how they respond to the food we ingest. In this interview, Fred explains how his observations of seemingly counterintuitive eating behavior in goats first compelled him to look deeper into the nutritional wisdom of animals and how his findings gave him valuable insights into how we can begin to rediscover our own nutritional wisdom on a personal basis. We also talk about how someone, like myself, who is coming from a place of chronic digestive issues can rebuild their system to the point that we can trust the signals that our body is giving us once again. Now, before I give too much away, I'll turn things over to Fred. Hey, Fred, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us here today. How are you doing? You bet, Oliver. I'm happy to be here with you, and I'm doing great. Perfect. Now, I've been really keen to talk to you because your new book, Nourishment, What Animals Can Teach Us About Rediscovering Our Nutritional Wisdom, is a very interesting perspective on the ever-changing and controversial topic of health and nutrition. So what do you say we just jump right into the meat of things? Sounds good to me. 
Perfect. Now, Fred, I've got to start by asking, how did you, as an anim- animal behaviorist, come to write a book largely about nourishment and dietary choices? Well, from the time that I was a young pup, actually, Oliver, I was really interested in, in wild animals, what they did, where they went. Uh, I worked on a ranch for many years in Colorado when I was an undergraduate in wildlife biology at Colorado State University. All that made me very, very interested in, in animal behavior. And I got especially interested in food selection, nutrition, and health. And uh, you know, trying to learn about what, what abilities do animals have. At the time that uh, I was an undergrad and even a graduate student, there was a general belief that livestock uh, didn't have any sort of nutritional wisdom. Uh, they'd lost that as a result of the process of domestication over the last 10,000 years. And so, you know, for 35, 40 years, that's what our group studied, was simply asking a variety of questions in a whole bunch of different ways, um, asking animals questions that would reveal whether or not they had, had a nutritional wisdom. Um, after I retired from Utah State University in 2009, I thought it would be really interesting to search the literature on human beings and try to compare and contrast what we'd learned on cattle, sheep, goats, bison, uh, you know, a variety of wild animals too, and see what, what was out there in the literature related to human beings. And so that's really how nourishment came about, was using what we'd learned about domestic animals as a basis then to talk about what we'd learned, but also then to say, well, what do we know about human beings? And, uh, you know, it's, it's, as you've alluded to, it's the literature on human beings is vast. There's no agreement really that I can find. You can find advocates for any kind of diet, basically, that you would want to find. Um, The scientific literature, you know, daily new reports come out that counter what was said in the past. So it's it's really quite confusing, but quite interesting to try to delve into that and see, see, uh, try to make a little bit of sense out of it. And that's what I tried to do in nourishment, basically. So give me some examples of the questions that you asked and the different ways that you observed the animals that you worked with in order to find out how they were selecting their own uh, nutritional choices and medicine? I guess for me, um, where where it really started to come into a focus was the, the years that I worked on uh, my graduate degrees working with goats in southern Utah down near the town of St. George uh, up in the boonies there. And we were, we were using the goats as a way to prune this shrub blackbrush. If you prune it in the winter, it stimulates new growth on the plant. And that new growth um, from lab analyses that people had done, we knew was higher in energy and protein and minerals compared to the old woody growth. Now, we were trying to use the goats as these mobile pruning machines to make the habitat better for wildlife species and, and domestic cattle that foraged on those areas. But what I, I saw two things that really, really caught my attention during those years. One, the goats didn't want to eat the new growth. So that was really, uh, you know, what's going on? What's going on? Here we know it's more nutritious from the standpoint of lab analyses, but they don't want to, they don't want to touch it. 
So that was one issue. But another issue too, we had six different pastures down there with goats on them. And goats in one of the pastures started to eat wood rat houses. Now, wood rats down there make these nice big houses at the base of juniper trees. And then they cover those houses with bark from the juniper trees. So, you know, it's like, wow, black brush is not great feed, but this, these wood rat houses look even worse. But what I realized was that the goats in one of those pastures were, had found basically the wood rat houses have different, different rooms in them. And one of the rooms is the bathroom, basically. And that's the room that interested the goats most. Well, so why? That bathroom is soaked in urine, and that urine-soaked vegetation is really a super way to get a protein supplement. And so the goats had learned that eating those wood rat houses was providing them with a nutrient that they were lacking that actually was then helping them to better utilize the black brush. And so, you know, after three months of being on black brush, the goats in that pasture that figured that out um, weighed, had better weight than the goats in the other five pastures. So that made me realize, you know, hey, these animals are really, they're figuring things out. When they're in a deficient state, they, through the sampling, they were able to figure that out. But what was interesting, too, is only that one group of goats figured it out. Five other groups of goats that had plenty of wood rat houses in their pastures never figured that out. So, so that really got me thinking about nutritional wisdom and how it works. And I believed that, that the goats absolutely had that. It was interesting, though, during that time, um, my colleagues at Utah State University who, who you know, as in, this was the general feeling. Animals don't have nutritional wisdom, especially the domestics. And I remember a toxicologist when I told him then, going back to the, the, point, the earlier point, that the goats wouldn't eat the new growth on the black brush. Um, when I told him that, he looked at me and he said, well, I guess that just goes to show animals don't have nutritional wisdom, doesn't it? I didn't believe it at the time, but I didn't know how you would go about proving that animals have nutritional wisdom. Um, so why are the goats avoiding the new growth that's higher in energy, protein, minerals, and so forth? What we came to find out through a series of bioassays where we would basically extract and purify compounds that were in the new growth, we came to realize that the new growth was exceedingly high in a particular kind of compound called a condensed tannin. And that tannin was, would have been harmful to the goats. And, and so they were avoiding it. They, they, they knew, they knew this was not good for them. So that, that's long-winded, Oliver, but that's what, those things really piqued my interest. One, here's these animals figuring out that wood rat houses helped them uh, with their nitrogen status. And two, they're realizing that when things have too high concentrations of these so-called secondary compounds like this tannin, it's bad for them and they learn to avoid it. So that's, that's what started me on 35 years then of, of asking question after question after question uh, related to how does all this work? How does this nutritional work, wisdom of the body work? 
I love that you brought up that example uh, from the book because that was one of the ones that really resonated with me. We have a herd of goats here on our small demonstration farm in Guatemala, and we've been observing for you know all these months now how they go about while they're out grazing, what they like to eat and what they leave behind, and how it changes kind of during the cycles that they have. For example, a lot of our goats right now just gave birth, and they're eating very differently than they were before then. And I've had, you know, a number of different explanations from people who've raised goats and know a lot more than I do, talking about how their nutritional needs are different. And I also really like that example you gave of them going for sort of the bathroom area of the wood rats, I had my own experience with that as well when I worked building trails in the wilderness areas of Colorado, actually. And the mountain goats there, we usually would think that, you know, they would stay away from people and they wouldn't like to interact. But they were constantly at our base camp while we were doing work there because they would go and dig into the earth where we had recently urinated. And I can only imagine it was for similar reasons as for that example that you gave. There were some minerals, possibly salts and other things in there that were sort of supplementing what they couldn't get in their natural environment. Wow, that's so interesting, Oliver. That's, you know, those are the kind of things that, that um, when you're out with animals all the time, I love, you know, I'm from Colorado originally, love the mountains, love mountain goats too, spent so much yeah, time. Yeah, me fact, too. I went, when I went to grad school, uh, my wish was that I would be able to study mountain goats. It didn't turn out that way, you know, it's domestic goats in southern Utah rather than mountain goats in uh in Colorado, which which worked out just fine, but yeah, it's those kind of observations that that really um, that are so valuable, I think, in setting the stage. And then what we were able to do is simply through carefully controlled experiments, really pick apart three parts of what I think are are just absolutely essential for for nutritional wisdom. Without all three of what I'm going to mention next here. It, it can't work. And I think a lot of times the reasons that we say domestic animals lack nutritional wisdom, and then when we get to humans, when we say, you know, how can you argue with the obesity crisis and all things that are happening that we have nutritional wisdom, I think it's because we, we aren't thinking carefully about all three of these these facets that are involved in 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 enabling nutritional wisdom. The first of these, we've really been been talking about, but I'm going to call it something a little bit, I'm going to name it, I'm going to call it flavor feedback relationships, which is what um, we we talked about over over the years on our project. And what that means is that the flavor of the food gets linked with feedback from cells and organ systems, including the microbiome, which everybody's so jazzed about nowadays. the, that feedback gets linked with, with the flavor, and it changes our liking for the flavor. That's what's so critical to realize is that these flavor feedback relationships are a way that cells, our organ systems, including the microbiome, change our liking for the flavor of the food. It, to me, it's, it's amazing. And it's not a conscious thing, you know, it's not something we sit and think about anymore and you think about which enzymes or uh, acids to release to digest your food. It's happening automatically at a subconscious level, but it's guiding our food selection. Um, It can only guide it in a decent way, though, if we're exposed to a variety of wholesome foods. 
you know, and for um, for wild animals foraging, like the mountain goat you mentioned, out there on huge variety of foods, or when domestic animals are allowed to do that, especially where there's a great deal of plant biodiversity, that's that's so critical to enable this. When we take animals, though, and for instance, put them in feedlots and put them on a total mixed ration, there's zero chance for them to self-select their diets. Um, a lot of the processed foods that, that we humans are exposed to isn't all that much different from total mixed rations in, in feedlots. So the second part, the first is this flavor feedback, so critical. But um, without a variety of wholesome foods to select from, whether you're a goat out there on, on, uh, in the mountains of Colorado or a human that's exposed to really wholesome, decent uh, kinds of foods, uh, the, this kind of wisdom can't be enabled. The third part that I, I have just found fascinating, and we, we studied it from the very first of my career, uh, is this whole sociocultural part of things. It, it's just fundamental to, to, to enabling nutritional wisdom. If you lose that in domestic or wild animals or in human beings, you, you've really lost a huge link to the landscape. Um, you know, domestic animals, if you let them go feral, cattle, sheep, and goats, they end up in extended families. Those are functional kind of units that learn about landscapes um, and learn how to use what and what not to eat, where and where not to go, what's a predator, what's not a predator. That culture is huge. And, uh, you know, we've basically broken that down in, in domestic animals and, you know, to the extent in human beings, the extended families we used to live in. Well, how does that work? You know, starting even in the womb, young animals are starting to be exposed to mother's diet. And we know that from studies we've done with livestock. We know that from really cool studies on human beings, too. So, you know, during the last trimester of gestation, the fetal taste system is fully functional. The foods that mom's eating, the flavors of those foods are getting into the amniotic fluid. And so, you know, the young organ the young creature is already starting to learn about what's food before it's even even born um then after birth um flavors in foods get into mother's milk and so again cues as to what's a diet then when young animals begin to forage um going with mom looking at what she's eating and what she's avoiding are is is huge kind of information and then more broadly and we did studies of this where mom goes habitat selection all those are ways to functionally link animals to landscapes and you know people often talk about genetics and the genetics of their herd or we talk about humans in in the sense of what you know where we came from but i think what what we don't think about much is that the social cultural part is the all the tremendous amount of learning that's taking place is huge in in terms of 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 us being able to be functionally linked in wholesome ways with landscapes i love this emerging field of epigenetics because it so fits the 35 years of research on on how experience and culture um, and enable animals to adapt to ever-changing landscapes. The field of epigenetics is all about is genes being expressed as a function of experience. And so genes are being turned on and off. And we sure saw that in studies we did and looked at different 
organ systems, you know, well, how, if a goat's reared on really poor quality diet, what's that do for the size and development of its rumen? Our colleagues in Australia looked at, um, you know, what happens if you rear sheep on saltbrush? Does that change them as a result of experience near to an early in life? And it, it does. Key function, form and function is changed. You know, these organ systems are changing as a function of experience, and those are epigenetic kind of, of changes, genes, genes being turned on and off as a function of experience. So, so it's that, you know, it's, it's the flavor feedback relationships, it's the uh, diversity of different foods and these social cultural things that are really the linchpins of nutritional wisdom. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about a goat or a human being, those same things matter hugely. I really like how you make the comparison between uh, livestock fed on, you know, corn or other concentrates and the modern diet where a lot of people are eating, you know, highly processed, extra salted, low quality food that really <laughs> kind of helps us to grow a lot physically, but probably leaves us um, very undernourished at the same time. And those three main points that you made earlier, how can we sort of consciously get back to those if we're coming from an already compromised place that may have removed us from the intuition that could have gotten us there? I think the key, Oliver, and this, you know, I know it's, it's, it's not easy, but I also, you know, I, I have a really close friend who, who worked for me actually as an undergraduate who went on to medical school then and, and is, a, is a medical doctor. Who's, who's absolutely right on top of everything that we're talking about now. And he, he's, it's just so encouraging to visit with him about the way he takes patients that are clearly overweight or obese. And, you know, he says, um, and they come in with various ailments. He says, well, look, the first thing we've got to do is get your diet right, because odds are all these problems that you're having are going to go away. Now, that's not always the case, but probably, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I bet it's 90% of the time, the issues go away when the diet gets right, the diet and the health and the, and the loss of weight. And, you know, really wholesome foods are, are the key, avoiding the processed foods. And I know this, you know, I'm spouting these words out like it's simple. I, I know that that's not necessarily the case, but, you know, getting on wholesome foods, um, fruits, vegetables, meat that comes um, that comes from, uh, I think, I really, uh, I really think there's a value in, in whether, whatever the meat is, whether it's poultry or pork or beef that comes from, from landscapes, that grass-fed kind of, the quote, grass-fed, you know, there again, I think, the, the greater the diversity of plants and foods that are in the diets of the animals we eat, that gets into their meat and milk. And that has huge implications for us too. So, you know, having, having foods, um, plants and animals that, uh, that are as wholesome as a person can get. Uh, one of the things I think about a lot nowadays, you know, we've selected and I, I don't blame, this is no blame in anything I'm saying. And, you know, I know, I don't know much of anything too. So, but, you know, when you compare the, 
wild plants, when you compare them, their phytochemical richness, all these, not only energy, protein, minerals, but all these secondary compounds that, you know, who cares the names of them, actually? There's thousands of them, alkaloids, terpenoids, phenolics. That doesn't matter so much. What matters is that they're in these wild plants and they have so many health benefits. Unfortunately, you know, in our selection processes, we've selected for yield. Yield has trumped phytochemical richness. And uh, that's not good in, in, in the vegetables and the fruits that we eat. And there's, you know, there's study reviews that show the phytochemical richness of plants that we eat is diminished by, what, 10 to 50 percent over the last half a century or so. So, you know, trying to, to find wholesome varieties of foods in the grocery store. Um, if you can grow your own, to me, that's, you know, that's sure what my wife and I have done for our whole lives is just try to grow. But, but trying to find varieties, uh, whether it's heirloom or whatever, that are rich. Sue and I, my wife Sue and I had that so revealed again to us this, this fall. We were living here in Montana, and there is a, just a huge array of different kind of, of fruits that come on as you go through the summer and into the fall. Probably you can go for a hike and eat 10 different different fruits that are on these plants. But the fruits have a lot of punch to them. You know, they, they're not just sweet. They have a lot. You, when you put them in your mouth, you know, there's there's just a lot of punch to those things, whether it's chokes cherries or service berries or huckleberries or uh, buffalo berry. We were we were found a whole bunch of buffalo berries and they, they really to me, they have a great flavor, but it's it's a strong flavor, and it's those phytochemicals, and like I say, it's those those chemicals that are in those plants that, um, when you eat them and they get into your bloodstream, that allows cells to to select what they need for their health. That's what keeps helps to keep cells healthy. To come back to your question, uh, you know, I'm, I'm wandering around, but I think it's trying to get wholesome foods, wholesome plants, um, whether that's fruits and produce, both those, and animals that are raised on, on pastures in areas that have a really diverse array of different plants. All that gets into, um, into creating a wholesome diet and just trying, you know, the, the, the really insidious kind of thing about the processed foods is that, um, you know, they, they hit you with a blast of energy, basically, that's really readily available. And, and we like that. It's, it's reinforcing livestock like that, you know, animals like that blast of energy. But um, it's too much when we extract and purify compounds like high fructose corn soap, that blast of energy becomes, you know, even to the point of addiction, where there's Pretty good case that some people, folks make that, that sugar is addicting. So it, it becomes too much. Then what's really kind of devious about the thing is we enrich and fortify those things with, with comp <laughs> compounds that we would be able to get from more wholesome foods. So, so it really kind of sets us up to be junkies, you know, food junkies. Um, there's a chapter in the book, as you know, how to poison a rat, cow, or a human being. And it's really about all of that, how all that, the immediate positive consequences and the delayed negative consequences really get us. Well, back to what you talked about, too, uh, of how the, this can create an imbalance or rebalance the, 
uh, microbiome within the system, a lot of the addictive qualities of some of these concentrated foods or refined foods like sugars are just completely throwing the microbiome out of whack, if I understand it correctly. And this is what causes cravings in the body and sort of a feeling of need for certain types of food, not so much because your body wants it, but because the imbalance of bacteria in various parts of your gut system are telling you that that's what it needs to survive. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, what the microbiome is really a is is the hot topic nowadays in in human nutrition people are really on that but you know oliver in the with with domestic animals cattle sheep goats what are referred to as ruminants they have this ruminant digestive system you know people have known about the microbiome for 50 60 70 years now that in ruminant nutrition that has been a huge 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 deal and what, what's absolutely clear, and in ecology as well, and, you know, ecologists have studied this too. And what, what they learned that you're uh, alluding to so nicely is that the diet you select favors different microbial populations. It's just a fact. You know, you have thousands of these different micro, different species of microbes, and some prefer certain things, others prefer certain things. And, uh, you know, one of the arguments for back in the day that ecologists made for eating a variety of uh, for the roles that secondary compounds play in limiting intake of one any one food and causing to eat a variety of foods is that maintains a balance uh, of different microbes in the system so some microbes may be able to do okay on tannins other ones on terpenes other ones on alkaloids on and on and on and on but if you if you have a variety of foods um, you'll maintain a more diverse microbial population. Well, if you go to a really processed diet and uh, and high in, in starch and re refined carbohydrates, then you're selecting for certain kind of microbes. We know, if, to use an analogy from the feedlot, so say you've got this a goat, since we've been talking about goats, it's out there, or cows may be better, it doesn't matter. You've got an animal that's out on a rangeland that's eating 30, 40, 50 different plant species, maybe three to five make up the bulk of the diet at any one point, but it's going to sample a whole bunch of others. It's got a really diverse kind of microbiome. Now you take it and you put it in the feedlot. What happens is you, you, all those bacteria that were thriving on all those different plant species now no longer have the food that they need. You put them on a high grain diet, and you start to favor these starch digesting bacteria. So, you know, that's analogous to what you're saying with the human diet, same, same sort of deal. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it's, I think a key thing to realize though, it's not just the microbiome, it is also these cells and organ systems come to use that then as their energy source, for instance, until you finally become diabetic or the point you've overloaded the, cells with energy to the point they can't even deal with it anymore. So that leads me to think that with these different feedback loops based on balances or imbalances within the microbiome, within uh, the cellular activity of various different organs of the body, a healthy body is giving you all sorts of feedback to reinforce its health and give you the nutrition that you need or possibly even the medicine if you find yourself uh, sort of falling out of balance. But what about for a lot of us who 
for, I guess, lack of a better term, are living with chronic illness or some sort of diminished state of, of health, we're probably receiving tons of different uh, negative or incorrect pieces of information and feedback from our system. How do we correct that? Is it a matter of just forcing yourself to eat more highly nutritious food until your body gives you correct feedback? Or is there other signs that we can look for? You know, I think that's part of it. And I'm going back to the medical doctor that, that I uh, was mentioning earlier the, that uh, uses nutrition as the base, as really the basis to start with. That, that's really the key is, is he, he works so hard to get people to, to remove all the refined foods from their diet and to, to get on to wholesome foods as we're talking. He's really an advocate too of growing your own food, you know, getting out there, growing a garden, getting hands-on involved with the whole process as, as part of, of health as well, um, the, broader, the broader issues of health. And, you know, as he says, most of the issues go away once, once a person does that. And it, it can take time. I've also seen that they have they have some groups that meet on a on a weekly basis to talk about issues and to try to reinforce one another to try to help one another in that to go through that I guess what you'd call adaptation trough to get weaned off of all the processed food and to get on to onto the more wholesome foods um, and uh, you know I haven't worked as closely with individuals nearly as closely as he does. That's what he does is his practice. So I feel a little bit, I start to get out of my depth in terms of, of um, you know, saying anything that would be strong recommendations. I've talked with him though about, well, how long does it take? And it, it varies with the, with the individual, which makes sense how long it takes to, to kind of wean yourself off of that. But one of the things that's clear is that once people get off of the junk and really get off of the junk, they don't want to go back. They, they, the wholesome foods become so important. Another thing I, I find really interesting that he and I talk about too is that, um, you know, if you, can, if you can figure out for yourself where to get wholesome foods, whether it's growing them yourself or, or which place you source those from, we, we both think that the amount of food that a person eats actually goes down. And if you can create nourishing meals and nourishing combinations of foods, that you actually eat less because you aren't over-ingesting foods to try to meet needs for limiting nutrients. I don't know if that makes mm. sense or not, but you know what? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I got to tell you, I'm well known in our group here on the farm for being the one who eats the most. And I've had a history of digestive problems my entire adult life. And it's very clear to all of us that I'm not making use of all of the food that I'm consuming. Although we are increasingly having a diet that comes straight from our farm. And I notice that when I'm eating more things that come from our garden directly, either it's the, the goat products, the, the dairy products that we produce, the things that come directly out of the garden, everything from sweet potatoes to corn to um, you know all variety of veggies. I do start to eat less as well and have less uh, sort of hunger pains throughout the day. So this really resonates with me particularly. No, I think that's the key. And, you know, nobody can tell you, Oliver, what uh, I think that's what's so interesting to me. And, you, as you know, there's a chapter in there up front in the book, No Two Alike, 
which makes the point that every one of us, each one of us is absolutely unique. Not just to say that as some sort of platitude or whatever. It, it's so important to realize. So nobody can tell you just what what to do in that sense. You have to experiment. Huh? But I think if you if you do, and you know what you were just saying, I, I love what you, you just said. I think you you'll come to figure for your body what works and what's satisfying, you know, so that after you eat a meal, you just feel, oh, you know, you don't, um, you, you just, you're not, you don't have these, these cravings or, you know, you don't feel satisfied. It's just that whole idea of, of being, being satisfied and, and less can equal more if there's a richness, a wholesome, a richness of the biochemicals that our, our body needs. I think that, and then, and those are those signals then that 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 we all experience huh? as as satiety to use that term you know of that that feeling of of not fullness but just being being really satisfied after a meal and I think we each have to to work to figure that out and probably it changes our whole life I'm no spring chicken anymore <laughs> and I, you know I, I think you just you have to you know it's just what you said earlier on. When your animals are pregnant, their needs are different. When they have when they have their babies, they've got huge needs for lactation, huge amount of energy required, and so on and so forth. And as we age, our needs change, and so, and so you know, it's something to, that we we just always have to to be aware of, and and uh, you know, and I think experimenting maybe what what worked before before when uh, we're younger that needs to change some and. I always used to laugh when we were doing our studies. People say, "Well, our tastes change as we age," and um, that's uh, that's absolutely the case. And what that's reflecting to me is that our needs are changing as we age as well. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I've heard that echoed from a couple of different sources. Now let's switch gears just for a second here, because there was another idea that I wanted to talk to you about, and that's the difference between eating locally and having, you know, even if it is nutritionally dense food imported from outside, what that can do to sort of disconnect us from our own environment. Do you have any experience with this? I know you've grown a lot of your own food for much of your life as well. Um, I think there's so many rewards, and you know, I don't know why. Well, so my wife and I were all on the ranch for several years. I, I was there for throughout undergrad, most of that, well, all of that actually. And then I stayed on, ran the ranch and soon I were married out there. And from when we first met, we liked growing gardens. Don't ask me why, I don't know. I don't know, but we just thought it was neat. We thought the way, way those old people did that stuff was really neat. So we did that our whole life. We, we grew our own gardens, we raised our own animals and slaughtered them, and I think that, um, you know, that participation in what you eat is really grounding and centering, for us anyway, it, it has been having to kill the animals that you you eat, you know, you, you, it makes you realize how sacred life is, that's not easy to do that, but then, you know, again, not to wear out the book, but <clears throat> That there's a chapter on plants and plant, uh, or a chapter that deals with plants. Plants are conscious, you know that, and that's not just saying that out of woo-woo-woo kind of stuff. There's some amazing kind of research. Well, everything's alive. It's all all conscious, and so it's that participation in life um, that I think is 
when you get hands-on involved with with growing your own food, even if it's a, just a little basis. Now, where where we live here, um, we're able to. We have vegetable gardens and herbal gardens and medicinal gardens. My wife has just gone so much into into those kind of uh, in, into the medicinal kind of gardens, and uh, you know, it just it's 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 an amazingly neat thing and way way to i think to ground ourselves and when we can do that and then supporting local people we we don't we, we don't grow our own uh, animals anymore but we know many people around us that do and so we buy we buy our meat uh from those folks that are that are doing such a such an amazing job of, of raising animals and and taking care of the the landscapes that those animals come from. Um, so I see I see so much value in in doing that. Not that not that everyone can do that, but I think to the degree that any of us can, it's it's a really grounding, centering kind of of activity that leads to to health of body and spirit as well. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Now, before I let you go, could you tell our listeners how they can get in contact with you and where they can find your book for purchase? Um, the book's there at the Chelsea Green website. It's on Amazon as well. Um, I'm happy for people to get in touch with me. Uh, well, you know, during the, the last 10 years of the program that I was at Utah State University, we had a huge international project called Behave. And there's a website, behave.net, and that's a good place to get a lot of information on the domestic animal end of things, you know. The, the human end of things is really unique to, to, to the book nourishment. That, that wasn't so much a part of what, what we did or what's on that website, but there's a huge amount of information on the domestic animals on the website. Marvelous. Well, I really appreciate all of your insights and especially your observations through experience and how this all relates to, you know, how we can improve our own personal health by observing nature as well. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Fred. I hope we can catch up again sometime soon. Oliver, thank you too for having me. And I hope that, that we can catch up and that we can meet one another one of these days as well. Oh man, that sounds great. I would love that too. All right. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. 
Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.